millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about a very ordinary bank robbery, as the overwhelming evidence pointed to the fact that John Esmond Murphy walked into a bank, bungled a heist, pulled a gun shot and stabbed the manager dead and was then captured, arrested, convicted and executed. But did he actually do it? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details and as a dramatisation of the real events it may also feature loud and realistic sounds so that no matter where you listen to this podcast you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 101, The Fatal Seizure of John Esmond Murphy. Today, I'm standing on Chesby Avenue off Chinatown, W1, one street north of the fiery death of Reginald Gordon West one street west of the hushed-up shooting of the Rosendale Club, a few yards from the first failed assassination on Russian dissident Alexander Litvinenko, and one street south of the stabbing of Savas Dmitriadas and the Cypriot Code of Silence, coming soon to Murder Mile. This bit of Shaftesbury Avenue lies on the border between Soho and Chinatown, only being little more than a busy road from Piccadilly Circus to Hoban, it is all of the traffic, but none of the footfall. With nothing to see here and nowhere to go, tourists pass through this West End wasteland, as it's a bit of a cultural dead zone, as there are no theatres, pubs or sites of historical interest. Just two long lines of very grey, very vague buildings and lots of exhaust fumes. And with the bustling theatres deliberately keeping their distance, it's as if this bit of Shaftesbury Avenue is an architectural leper. Of course, 
To anyone who loves staring blankly at some obscure arty subtitled twaddle, losing a shirt or a hand in a not-so-legal Chinese casino, wasting a night being yard at in a pretentious club by some TV tossers, or overcharged by a Chinese herbalist for an extract of tiger anus to cure your piles, then this is your promised land. A high point is at 84 Shaftesbury Avenue, a five-story mansion block with red brick and cream-coloured pillars built in the late 1800s, which is now home to Olay, a Korean barbecue where many satisfied munchers, like myself, have gorged themselves silly on a wide array of mouth-watering delights. And although this is a fabulous place to fill your belly, it is also the site of a bungled robbery, an unfortunate death, and a very strange miscarriage of justice. As it was here, on Saturday the 7th of November 1908, the John Esmond Murphy would be fatally seized with an uncontrollable urge to steal and kill for the very first and the very last time. But did he actually do it? Well, yes, he did. And the evidence is irrefutable. It's a fact that on Saturday the 7th of November 1908, at 11.40am, 21-year-old John Esmond Murphy of Paddington, having purchased a 4-inch switchblade knife and a .455 caliber revolver just one day prior, entered the bank of Cartmel and Schlitt. Being penniless, he shot the manager once, stabbed him six times in the hands and chest. A struggle ensued, Murphy fled, and in his desperation to escape, he stabbed a van driver and a police constable, who wrestled him to the ground, and he was swiftly arrested within sight of the bank, and just a few seconds after the robbery. The incident occurred in broad daylight, on a busy street, he wasn't wearing a disguise, and he was positively identified, without hesitation, by several witnesses who all gave detailed statements. His fingerprints were found in the bank, on the gun, on the knife, and the blood had stained his clothes. Seven weeks later, being deemed medically fit to stand trial, although he pleaded his innocence by claiming that he had no memory of the event, with his insanity plea rejected and his laughable defence being down to a dose of malaria, two bouts of sunstroke, and a hereditary form of epilepsy. As the robbery was clearly premeditated, he was found guilty in a court of law and executed for his crimes. If ever there was an open and shut case of robbery and murder, it was this. But did he actually do it? Well, no, I don't think he did. John Esmond Murphy, known as Jack, was born in Calcutta, India, in the summer of 1886, as the second of two siblings to British parents. His mother was a housewife, his father was a sergeant major in the army, and he had one sister called Kathleen. Originating from Ireland, 
The Murphys were a loving but ordinary lower middle class family seeking a better life as the British Empire expanded across Asia. Being a sensitive little boy with a small thin frame, brown wavy hair and a beak-like nose, Jack was neat and clean, polite and calm, quiet and meek. He didn't shout, cry or cause a disturbance. And being an intelligent lad with a love of engineering and poetry, he had a bright future ahead of him. But sadly, the Murphys were a family who were cursed with bad luck, illness and tragedy. In 1896, when Jack was aged 10, the Murphy family was struck down with malaria, a deadly disease of the blood carried by mosquitoes, resulting in shivers, fever, and sometimes death. And although not a cure, a lifelong course of quinine would prove an effective treatment. But sadly, his father would not survive. As a small sickly boy, Jack would battle typhoid, scarlet fever, cholera, and severe bouts of sunstroke, which would almost take his life. And although he bravely soldiered on, his life was to get worse. In 1902, when Jack was aged 16, having contracted pleurisy, his mother died of a brain fever. Jack and Kathleen were two grieving teens, all alone in India. and 4000 miles from their nearest living relative anyone else would have struggled and failed but being educated hard working and fluent in bengali gifted a small inheritance in their parents will they would thrive for two more years only both parents had bequeathed them something more than money and a home as the biggest inheritance the two siblings would receive was the hereditary curse of epilepsy Initially Jack and Kathleen didn't know that they were epileptic as with its onset often occurring in puberty to the best of their knowledge they had never had a seizure But then there are two very distinct types of epileptic seizure one which affects the whole body and the other which affects the brain commonly known as grand mal seizures these attacks have familiar symptoms like the rigid stiffening of the body a frothing at the mouth a loss of bladder control consciousness and sometimes the ability to breathe and most notably the violent uncontrollable spasm of the whole muscular system which can last for seconds take hours to recover and may require medical assistance And although both types are caused by a violent electrical disturbance in the brain, petty mal seizures are incredibly subtle. So subtle that sometimes even the sufferer and those around them are unaware that a seizure has taken place. Known as absent seizures, although symptoms vary, often being triggered by moments of emotional stress, an absent seizure is typically denoted by a vacant look in the eyes. a slight fluttering of the eyelids a ceasing of a conversation mid-sentence and being physically unarmed they often return to normal with no memory of those missing seconds but sometimes 
An atypical petit mal seizure can be preceded by mood swings, aggression, and almost like Jekyll and Hyde, a severe but temporary shift in personality. And although during a seizure, they can still walk, move, and interact with the world, unlike the people around them, they have no control over their actions. Thankfully, suffering intermittently from typical petit mal seizures, neither Jack nor Kathleen let their disabilities stop them from leading an active and productive life. In 1903, age 17, Jack and Kathleen returned to the UK, first to Glasgow and then to London. Having served 18 months as a conscientious and dedicated private in the British Indian Army, being trained as a mechanic, Jack earned a good reputation as a reliable, trustworthy and hard-working engineer. In 1904, he trained as a driver and a mechanic for the automobile market on Oxford Street, where his manager praised him as an asset to the company and said that he was quite a gentleman. In 1905, he became substation attendant for the Underground Electric Railways Company, responsible for the power supply at Raven's Court Park tube station, where his supervisor said that he was steady, reliable and intelligent, and remaining in employment until March 1908. As an assistant to a civil engineer, Jack was only laid off owing to an engineering strike, where his last employer hailed him as a very well-trained engineer, perfectly sober and the meekest and quietest individual that I have ever met. Jack rarely drank, he didn't do drugs, he didn't lead a lavish lifestyle, and he had no expensive tastes. He never swore, shouted or stole. He didn't have a bad bone in his body, and he had no criminal record. And as a quiet lad with few friends, outside of engineering and poetry, his one passion was target practice. Once a week, having trained as a keen but careful marksman in the army, he enjoyed the thrill of shooting at paper targets at the King's Rifle shooting range in nearby Oxenden Street. Keen to develop a solid career, to live a good decent life, and to aid his sister who had been diagnosed with a brain tumour, Jack had never taken a day off sick. In fact, although an epileptic would never have been hired for such responsible roles, his petty mal seizures were so infrequent that his colleagues barely noticed. Six months later, a court of law would conclusively prove that John Esmond Murphy had robbed a bank, inflicted two violent assaults, and had brutally murdered a man for money. But did he? It is often said that atypical seizures are often triggered by moments of great stress. By the middle of October 1908, having eked out a meagre existence in a series of part-time jobs, even though he had moved into a modest basement flat at 145 Shireland Road in Paddington, having pawned off his personal possessions, Jack couldn't afford to pay his six shillings a week rent, or even to eat. Having deliberately moved one street away to be near his only surviving relative, his beloved sister, Three times a day, Jack would visit Kathleen, 
having married well, she lived in the pleasant mansion block called Delaware Mansions in Maidavelle. But living apart from her husband and with a three-year-old daughter, Kathleen required constant care as she awaited an operation on her brain tumour. Burdened by no work, no money and no purpose, with the threat of being homeless looming, no bright prospects on the horizon, and his last surviving family member knocking at death's door. Although Jack was still his usual self, a meek, placid, and thoughtful boy, all too often, a cloud would descend over his head as he morphed into someone else. Someone darker, more depressive, and unusually angry. Over the weeks, as his frequent seizures grew stronger and longer, his eyes became cold and dead, his face became vague and distant, and his eyelids fluttered almost imperceptibly, as if he was on autopilot. And yet, now there were new symptoms, as sometimes he would scratch his left wrist until the red raw rash was bleeding. Often he'd rock back and forth on his feet, muttering in an incoherent mumble, as waves of epileptic attacks came one after the other. And then there were his dark and violent moods. In an instant, having been the epitome of meekness and compassion, who just seconds earlier had been supping his tea whilst reading poetry to soothe his sister, Jack would suddenly snap and change into someone unrecognisable, who was aggressive, violent and threatening. And then, just as quickly as it had begun, it would end. He would return to his normal self, unaware that time had passed, that an incident had occurred, and unable to apologise for his actions, as he had no idea what he had done. As the rapidity of his petty male seizures escalated, as Jack became physically and emotionally drained by the persistent electrical assaults on his brain, it became more impossible to work out where the old Jack ended and the new Jack began. And yet, just two weeks before the robbery and the murder of a man who Jack had never met, something very sinister and out of character would happen. On Monday the 19th of October 1908, at 12.45am, Kathleen and her live-in carer, called Stella Lynn, had been out of Rayner's Bar in Haymarket and had returned by taxi to Delaware Mansions. Just as they had left it a few hours earlier, the door was locked, the fire was out, the lights were off and the flat was empty. Or so they thought. Having heard an odd noise, a creaking, then a breathing, as if inside Kathleen's bedroom was someone waiting. Opening the door, they saw no one, but the sounds didn't cease. And with no stranger hidden behind the door or inside the wardrobe, there was only one last place to check. Underneath the bed. Striking a match, as Stella peered into the dark recess beneath, with his beak-like nose touching the bed springs, Stella saw Jack. He was semi-clad, motionless, and grinding his teeth. He was almost catatonic, 
as if he was asleep, but with his open eyes fluttering, and tightly gripped in his right hand was a cutthroat razor. Stella was rightly terrified, as barely a few days earlier, while sharing a cab into the West End with Jack, as another black mood descended, he had muttered, I'm sick of this world. I'm going to find my sister and end her life and mine and her child's. He didn't. In fact, seconds later, he was fine and had forgotten everything he had just said. But Stella had forewarned Kathleen of this threat. That night, Estella snatched away the razor. In an instant, Jack snapped out of his strange slumber, wrapped both of his bloodied hands around his sister's throat, and as Kathleen screamed in terror, he strangled her. His mouth wide and silent, his eyes vacant and dead, as if it meant nothing. Kathleen's death was only stopped by Stella, and as swiftly as this attempted murder began, it had stopped. The incident was reported to the police. Two constables, PC Sanders and Hammond, attended the scene, and a statement was made. But as Kathleen did not wish to press charges, and Jack was now calm and unthreatening, the matter was dropped. For the next three days, although Kathleen's throat was bruised and she couldn't swallow, he refused to apologize, as in his eyes, nothing had happened. This incident only formed a small part of Jack's defence, as it was deemed irrelevant. But according to the prosecution, what happened next would clearly constitute premeditation of the robbery. On Friday the 6th of November 1908, at 9am, Jack reassured his landlady that he would pay his outstanding rent the very next day. Only he had no money and no job. At 2pm, having loaned £4 off his sister to pay his back rent, instead he went to the King's Rifle gun range on Oxenden Street and brought a .455 calibre Webley Fosbury revolver, 25 bullets and a black-handled 4-inch switchblade knife. At 8pm, as he sat with Kathleen, took her temperature and read her some Indian poetry to soothe her, as although the operation to remove her brain tumour was due the next day, being five guineas short of the full fee, her treatment looked unlikely. At 10.30pm, as she slept, he kissed her goodnight and reassured her that everything would be okay. But that night, the cancer almost took her. The next day, for the first time ever, this timid boy would rob a bank and commit a brutal murder. But was Jack acting out of desperation in a moment of high emotional stress? Or, as a petty male epileptic, was he caught in the grip of an absent seizure? At 84 Shaftesbury Avenue, on the corner of Macclesfield Street in Chinatown, was Cartmel and Schlitt. A bank and foreign currency exchange ran for 15 years by George Cartmel and Frederick Schlitt. Being barely 12 feet square, 
it was small and practical, but undeniably a bureau de change, as with large black lettering stating this above. Although impossible to see inside, owing to its lightly frosted glass on both sides, in the windows, behind a locked screen, sat 13 bowls of foreign notes and gold coins. Inside, through a thin wooden door, in an even smaller foyer, was a large wooden counter with a heavy brass grill above, which kept the staff, the customers, and the money at a distance. Across the counter was a neat array of banker's books, paper bags, weights and scales, a check perforator, and a till. Behind the counter were rows of currency drawers and two safes. In total, the bank held almost £2,000 in coins, notes and gold. Roughly quarter of a million pounds today. With co-owner George Cardmel being on leave and the manager George Calderwood heading out, the bank was left in the very capable hands of his partner, 47-year-old Frederick Schlitt, a married father of two. Witnessed on the corner of Dean Street, dressed in a plain brown suit and a dark overcoat, but nothing to disguise his face, not a mask nor a hat. Jack stood silently, rocking on his heels, as a trickle of blood ran freely down the red rash on his left wrist. But when later questioned, Jack could recall none of this. At 11.40am, as Benjamin Goodkin, the bank's last customer, exited the door, being unfazed by any sight or sound, as if in a trance, Jack calmly crossed the busy street, a loaded gun by his side, and entered Cartmel and Schlitt, a place he had never been to before, nor had any reason to visit. The robbery was unlike any other, as with the gun outstretched and poking through the brass grill at the chest of Frederick Schlitt, Jack never once shouted, hands up, this is a robbery, or give me your money. He didn't utter a single warning or instruction. Instead, with wide fluttering eyes, he fired. This sweet-natured and sensitive boy who had never fired a single bullet in his life at anything but a paper target, had, without provocation, emotion, words or sounds, shot Frederick above the heart. And having fallen to the floor, as the bespectacled banker tried to defend himself with the hefty bulk of the Czech perforator, Jack, who had no history of violence or sadism, pulled out a black-handled switchblade knife and plunged the four inches of steel into his chest, slashing at the terrified man's hands. As the blade perforated his stomach, his bowel, his intestines, his shoulder and his left lung. And although Jack's teeth were bared, he didn't seem to be grinning with glee, but grinding his teeth. Desperate to raise an alarm, as the pale boy with a vacant expression plunged a knife deep into his torso, having grabbed a brass weight, with all of his might, Frederick hurled the half-kilo lump, and having smashed the lock screen and the frosted front window, it landed with a thump on Shaftesbury Avenue, scattering shattered glass and almost hitting Benjamin Goodwin, who turned back 
as he'd forgotten something. Seeing Frederick in an ever-increasing crimson pool of blood, Benjamin screamed, Police! Murder! Alerting a constable. But the second he looked back, Jack had fled. And although the floor was strewn with almost £200 worth of paper money and gold coins, Jack didn't steal a single penny. Instead, he fled down Shaftesbury Avenue towards Piccadilly Circus, and at the corner of Wardour Street, being confronted, he stabbed the van driver George Carter and police constable Albert Howe. But having his short pursuit cut short by several passers-by, Jack was swiftly arrested, just yards and seconds after the robbery. In his cell, this small meek boy didn't seem like a robber or a knife-wielding maniac. But as the witnesses had all seen it unfold with their own eyes, there was no denying that he was. The arresting constable even commented that he looked perfectly cool and calm, as if he had been out for a walk. And yet, when questioned, this placid young man just looked confused and bemused as he had no memory of the incident whatsoever. Two days later, Frederick Schlitt died of his injuries, and Jack was charged with murder. The investigation was simple. Conducted by Inspector Fogwell, the robbery was conclusively proven to have been premeditated as Jack had purchased both weapons the day before. His motivation was money for his rent and his sister's operation. And although there was an abundance of irrefutable evidence to prosecute Jack, such as the gun, the knife, the fingerprints, and multiple eyewitness statements from P.C. Howe, George Carter, and before his death, Frederick Schlitt, there was very little evidence to defend him. Having apologised for his actions, although many colleagues testified to his placid character, they all admitted that he had unusual quirks, tics, and in recent weeks, that he was prone to unnatural, violent outbursts. With an insanity plea dismissed, on the 8th of December 1908, at the Old Bailey, the medical experts, none of whom had any direct experience of absence seizures or petty malepilepsy, all dismissed his claims. Dr. Philip Dunn, the police divisional surgeon, stated, In my opinion, his condition was perfectly consistent with nervousness arising from the situation. Dr. James Scott, medical officer at Brixton Prison, said, He was conscious of his acts, and he knew whether he was doing right or wrong. And with the judge, deeming his sister's deposition into his mental and physical health inadmissible as evidence, having pleaded not guilty to all charges, a unanimous jury found him guilty of murder. And on the 6th of January 1909, Jack Esmond Murphy was executed at Pentonville Prison for a crime which the evidence proved that he did commit. But did he? 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. After the break, I go blah blah blah, slurp slurp slurp, munch munch munch, and then we all switch off, if you haven't already. Before that, big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Christine Glasson and Beverly Cadell. I thank you. With a special thank you to Damien Twarogowski for your very kind donation, I thank you too. Plus everyone who has recently left a lovely review of Murder Mile on your favourite podcast app. It is truly appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive in june olive in june gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone Welcome to Extra Mile Uh, It's me, sorry, tired, tired early it's gloomy outside today, so do you know it's it had the big light shining in earlier on. It was too bright, and now all of a sudden it's all gloomy and crappy, and uh, which is good in a way. It's 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 quite good when when it's it's weird when the sun's up and bright, and in the morning all the birds are chirping and going, and it's hard to record stuff. When it's gloomy, the the birds can't be bothered, so it makes it slightly easier. Uh, so cool. Anyway, extra miles here. The extra part of the show. You've listened to the episode. That's that done. This is the extra bit. Not compulsory. You don't have to listen to it if you don't want to. But some people do. That's why I do this. Uh, but the episode is done. So you can switch off now if you want to. Uh, but what we'll do, we'll do a quiz very shortly. Uh, and you'll learn some extra stuff about this case as well. So how long have I done? Okay, good. 
uh hope you enjoyed that episode um where am i at the moment i'm still in the same place that i was last week i'm gonna move next week <coughs> uh, it's all right here it's nice and peaceful near i'm near stuff but not near enough nice places to work um the only problem is there's a bit of a, a whiff there's a there's a poo plant around the corner not too far away and uh yeah it's uh on the hot days you, you can smell the you can smell the poo wafting around it's quite funny you, you go to the top of the hill and people are there with their um their big posh houses and their big gates and their posh cars and you go oh this is very nice and then the smell of poo creeps over and you go ah yes i had that years ago when my <laughs> when my, my new my boss had bought a new house it's a very very expensive house in a very expensive part of town and she showed me around it's joe very pricey a good couple of million pounds on this <laughs> we were in the back garden i went oh you're on the heathrow flight path as well and she went Rrr. it's like yeah she spent all this money but you can't control where the planes are flying over and they were flying over really low anyway uh so that's that what's going on this week um gonna today's thursday you've just got episode 100 i'm doing episode 101 this morning i'm trying to stay on target uh, i'm going to pick up the murder mile key rings this week which are hopefully turning up so uh 25 pound patron 25 dollar patrons will be getting one of those uh, gratis i'll give a, a, a few of them out to the 10 pound patrons and i might quiz off a few of them as well but they're rare i've only got a about 100 of them so uh, they will be special gifts gonna pick those up as well and that means a quick trip into town i'm gonna put my tea on now while we're thinking about it and open some windows quick trip into town i'm gonna get my post uh because i'm about 30 miles away from my uh my post box so yeah it's a bit of a it's a bit of a trek it's like to go into town to get stuff uh it's about four hours round trip without a car Either I cycle in, or I have to get a series of uh, uh, buses and tubes, and I don't want to do that. But then I need to pick up my post and go into town and get stuff. Uh, tea's on. Right, tea's on. Good. Open some windows. Get some air in. Cool, lummy. That's better. Uh, I'm off to do my laundry in a bit because it's laundry day today, so I'm gonna. I've taken all my bed sheets and all that to the laundrette. Oh, that's going to be fun. God, my life's exciting. What else has happened recently? I had a Costa coffee. It wasn't open, but they were doing takeaway. I had a Costa coffee. I haven't won those since <gasps> early, early March. That was exciting. Ooh, all the things you miss. That's very exciting. Uh, of course, I'm, lo I'm looking forward to the days when we can... When people stop being bellends and going to beaches and stuff like that, and people start wearing masks properly and stop being dickheads and going oh i don't need to wear a mask uh, uh. uh you do you do put a fucking mask on uh sooner you put on a mask and wash your hands and keep your distance the sooner we can get all get through this but uh it's being delayed by bellends who think that they don't need to abide by the rules it's time to piss me off now these people who think that they know better right uh, uh anyway uh yeah no uh, i'm looking forward to the days when i can go back in costa and abuse their internet and their uh their electricity <sighs> i'm getting through a lot of fuel making all these episodes anyway uh what else am i doing not much oh i watched an old episode of uh bake off the other day that was exciting they were making bakewell tarts mm, yummy yummy that was good uh what else is going on uh, as just mentioned going off to do the laundrette very shortly 
I've been in a place where there's no laundrettes for the last couple of weeks, so I've been doing a lot of hand washing, but I found a laundrette nearby, except this is the weird thing, isn't it? Because we haven't been touching, oh, I haven't touched any money since like the start of March, been trying to do it all on a uh, contactless, which is good. Uh, I haven't had any, normally I have a stash of pound coins and tens and twenties. I got my tens, I got my twenties and my fifties, but I realised I got no pound coins. So I literally had to go searching for pounds. So I was like, where do you buy pounds? <laughs> Luckily, the post office did them, so I've got I've got some from the post office. But it was weird to hold. They're in a little sealed bag, which I like, and I'm going to put my gloves on before I touch them. I might disinfect them later on. But, uh, yeah, it's weird touching money again. Just not used to touching money anymore. Could this be the end of money? Could be, could be. Anyway, what else happened the other day? Um, I had my first trip to a pub. Obviously, pubs are open now. Went out. Well, I met with some friends. We did a nice social distance thing in the flat. We had a meal. We kept our distance. Then about eight o'clock, we ran out of beers and we went. Oh. One of the mates was like, "Let's go to the pub." And we we're like, "Well, there's a pub around the corner. It's open. It's meant to be socially distanced. Let's play it safe." So we walked in and they they take your name. We we're like, "Okay, we're happy with this." They take your name and they're like, "Right, we'll show you to a table." They showed us to a table and we're like, "Okay, this is good." Tables are all spaced apart and the on the floor was all the lines telling you where to walk and where don't to walk. And you you don't go to the bar. You sit at the table. You download an app. You order your drinks through the app and then you pay contactless. And I was like, "Okay, the, you know, this is good. I'm quite liking this." But even though the pub wasn't busy, it was a big pub and there was probably only 30 people in there. None of the windows are open. Ooh, would have liked windows open, you know, get a bit of air flowing through, air circulating. Uh, no one inside was wearing masks. No one inside, except us, were using hand sanitizer. I had mine in the middle of the table and we all had that. No one was wearing gloves. And, and it's true what they're saying. Drunk people can't socially distance at all. They just, you know, the you have some drink, the inhibitions go... They don't care anymore. And people were staggering around, coming over to the table, chatting to us, going, oh, mate, it's nice to be out in the pub, isn't it? Oh, I miss being in the pub, talking to people in their faces. It's like, mate, fuck off. Sorry about bad words then, but it was like, it was like we, we don't want you near us. And then they go, well, what's your problem? Why don't you want to talk to people? It's like, we don't, we don't know who you are. We don't know what germs you've got. It's weird, isn't it? It's weird that theatres, you can't open theatres yet, but... If you think about it, the kind of people who go to the theatres, they, they don't tend to get drunk. They sit there quietly. You can socially distance and they, they stay where they are. You can watch the show. You can open the doors. You can put on the air conditioning. You can make it safe. But theatres aren't allowed to open and probably won't open for another half year, year. And yet pubs are open. And it doesn't make sense because people, they have one drink and they don't follow the rules. It does not make sense. You know weird isn't it cinemas cinemas will be the same do you know there's a way to make that work do you know because you have people who aren't drinking they're just having sh some sugar but they've opened the pubs but not the theater it's if it was me if it was me i would have opened i would find a way to open theaters and cinemas and kept the pubs shut or kept the pubs as a kind of a takeaway service finding a way to make it work coffee shops as well we got new rules here at the moment. There's weird rules that say you have to wear masks when you go shopping. Yeah, but you don't have to wear masks when you're in an office, which is weird, isn't it? You kind of, oh, I'm waiting for my kettle to boil. You can sit there in your office all day, surrounded by people with no windows open, breathing in their fumes all day. But if at lunchtime you decide you want to go out to Pret or Mackey Do's to get yourself something to eat, you have to put on a mask. But if you go to a pub, you don't 
weird, isn't it? There's no consistency. We're not going to get through this. It's not going well. <laughs> it's not going well at all. Anyway, I'm staying in lockdown. Uh, I know some people have messaged me about our, our tours happening because, you know, everyone seems to think that the, the virus has gone and lockdown has stopped. No. I'm hoping to be up and running by September, October, but it all depends about whether we have a second wave and it all depends about whether people are adhering to the rules. My tea's almost done. Oh. I put too much water in. Ah, and now it's overflowing. There we go. You can't beat a cup of tea. Cup of tea. Lovely. Lovely jubbly. If only all this virus stuff would be sorted by just a cup of tea. That'd be lovely. Lovely jubbly. Oh, oh, hot, hot, hot. Oh, wow. I need to find a, uh, I need to find some kind of uh, spoon that doesn't get bloody hot when you're stirring your tea. Right, let's do some questions, peeps. Let's do some question quests. Right, as mentioned, uh, these will be questions associated with the episode. Um, I might edit them out. I might edit the sequence, the, the, the part it's related to out of this episode. That might go. Uh, so if I ask you a question uh, and you go, oh, I don't know anything about that, it's probably because I've edited it out. Uh, or I might mess it up when we go into the next bit, all the information. So let's do that now. Right. Hokey cokey, pig in a pokey. Um, question one. What city were Jack and Kathleen raised in? What city were Jack and Kathleen raised in? I almost gave away the answer. I'm too tired. Uh, question two. Uh, what type of epilepsy did Jack suffer from? Uh, question three. What did Jack's father do as a job? Some of these are easy questions. Some of them are hard questions. Question four. What is at 84 Shaftesbury Avenue today? You would have heard that at the very start. Question five. What was Jack holding when Stella found him under his sister's bed? Question six. Which tube station was Jack the substation attendant for? Question seven. How much money was held at Cartmel and Schlitz Bank? Uh, I've put two versions in there so one is how much it was worth in 1908 and and how much it was worth today you can do either question nine what were jack's three favorite hobbies and interests they were all in this episode uh question nine what is the name of the shooting range jack went to there you go that's in there and question 10 uh before jack and kathleen came to london where did they live so that's after they left oh, i'm gonna ruin the first question aren't i well i it was, the first question was what city were they raised in so it makes no difference so so uh after they left india before jack and kathleen came to london where did they live first okay let's have a look at some some stuff here Okay, uh, uh, let's start. Okay, um, obviously the day of the uh, attack itself, the murder and the robbery. Um, 
Obviously, there's a lot of high stress in the house because his sister was going off for her operation. I'll discuss more about that shortly. Uh, people said that he, he, he was in a weird mood. He was oddly distracted. Um, he'd spent a lot of days. He didn't seem to be making a lot of sense uh, to people. Like, whenever he was talking, nothing seemed to make sense. Obviously, uh, Kathleen lived with her daughter. She had a three-year-old daughter, also called Kathleen. Um... Uh, Da, da, da. What, what was he where was this bit sorry i'm going through well, uh, so i'm going i'm going through all my notes at the time i'm trying to work out what's 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 good and what's interesting uh, yeah as mentioned they'd been up all night because they really thought that his sister wasn't going to make it through the night she was really struggling the doctor had been called out a couple of times uh his name was uh dr john lancelot atkinson he attended to mrs carlton uh, for the couple of days prior to her operation, said she was very w ill indeed, uh, that they almost lost her that night. Um, she'd been suffering uh, from a brain tumour. Uh, she's meant to have an operation. So that day, the day of the uh, murder and the um, the robbery. Uh, as mentioned, she, she needed to have an extra five guineas, guineas for the surgeon's service. This Don't forget, this is prior to the National Health Service. Uh, so this is 1908, this is like 30, 20, 30 years before the National Health Service. So prior to that, um, you had to pay. I know this is baffling to hear, isn't it? You had to pay for all your medical treatment. So any prescriptions, any any visits to the doctor, you know, uh, any operations, you had to pay for all that. I know it's baffling, isn't it? How, sorry, Americans. How how can anyone live in a world where you, you have to, you know, pay, Joe, look, thank God we live in a world where, you know, if we want an operation, we can just go and have it today, go can I have an operation? Yep, thank you very much. It's free. Do you know, if you get knocked down by a car, it's all dealt with. Do you know, everything's covered. But back then, it was, do you know, if you hadn't got any money, you were screwed. So, uh, yeah, she was five guineas short for a life-saving operation. Um, he, Jack didn't know this, but uh, she was actually going to buy... She'd loaned him four pounds, which he'd spent on a gun. Uh, so she was a bit short. She was actually going to borrow the money off her solicitor, a guy called Mr. Ellis. But uh, actually that day, the, the surgeon actually took pity on her and decided that he didn't want any operation for the surgery. Uh, so no fee was actually paid. So actually, if if Jack wasn't in a seizure and he was committing the robbery, uh, you know, for money for his sister, he, it was kind of irrelevant in another way because, you know, they didn't, she didn't need the money. She was going to be okay. Um, as mentioned, I've got a little bit of a description of the bank, which was there, only a little tiny place. The shop was flush with the pavement on the right-hand side going north, so kind of the entrance was more on Macclesfield Street as opposed to uh, Shaftesbury Avenue, so it's, uh, it's a corner shop, but there was windows on both sides. It had lettering above saying, uh, you know, Bureau de Change. It's only small, as you'd expect, as we have with uh, kind of those foreign exchange counters today. You walk in, there's not much there. There's a big thick counter in front of you with a grill that you can't get behind people behind there and then they they slide your money through a, a little drawer or a slot um interestingly there was a the, the side door on here which gave you access to where the staff were um was never locked they 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 never really had any problems with this at all so their side door it was it wasn't locked it was kind of on a latch uh so there's no real discussion of how 
how Frederick Schlitt and Jack ended up wrestling and fighting together. It's, it's believed that Frederick kind of went to run and either he came out into the front with the uh, check perforator to attack Jack to defend himself or Jack went behind and drag, dragged him into the foyer, which doesn't make sense. But obviously, Frederick never mentioned that in his, in his statement and uh, uh, Jack was in the middle of a fit. So we don't know. Um... It seems strange that Jack didn't kind of uh, take... Oh, I was almost about to mess up one of the questions then. I won't. There was a lot of money in the shop, as mentioned. As mentioned, there was lots of foreign exchange money, lots of gold. Uh, I can mention stuff that won't ruin the question here. I think they said that there was around around 30 to 40 pounds worth of gold in the front of the shop, behind the locked screen, but the screen had been smashed. So, do you know, 30, 40 pounds, that's a lot of money. Uh, so I had some really nice details about, oh yeah. Okay. Um, this was the guy I, I, I was, I researched into Frederick's life to see whether I take it, his perspective, but actually when I learned more about, about, um, the seizures that Jack had almost messed up another question, I felt it better to focus on Jack as opposed to the, the guy who was the, the actual victim. So his full name was Frederick George Wilhelm Maria Julius Schlitt. That's a name and a half. But uh, everyone called him Julius. He was born in 1861. Originally came from Germany. Uh, he was married to Nellie. She was four years younger than him. They had one son called Ronald. Uh, and one daughter called Ethel. They lived in La Rose Road in Kensington-upon-Thames. Very nice part of town. Uh, they had a servant. They were married. He'd been a banker for many years. He was 47 years old. He wore spectacles. A broad-shouldered man of about six foot two. Uh, and George Thomas Cartmel was his business partner. <laughs> been his oh, business partner. But that week he was on holiday. Tea time. He was very regular. A good man. Uh, came in. Uh, 9 a.m. till 6.30 p.m. Saturdays, he worked till 3.30. Everything was very much uh, regular and above board. Uh, As mentioned, the last customer who came out of the shop was Benjamin Allison Goodkin. It's weird. We've got a gentleman whose middle name is Maria, and now we have a gentleman whose middle name is Allison. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, he was the last man to come out of the shop, the last man to, to kind of witness everything going on. He said that was around 11.40 a.m. Uh, he was the manager of the Earl's Court roller skating rink. He'd just gone in there to check a directory. He came out, then he realised something and he turned back. And at the point that he turned back to go back to the shop, that's when the uh, the, the big weight came through the shop and smashed the window. Um... um Frederick Schlitt and George Cartmel, the owners of the shop, had already agreed with them that if there was going to be a robbery, there's no discussion that they'd had a robbery before, but they'd said because, you know, there was no alarm, no alarm system in the shop. Don't forget, this is 1908. What they said was if ever they were going to be robbed, they would grab one of the heavy weights and hurl it through the, the street side window. So it causes a disturbance and therefore you can shout help police, which is what happened. Um, as mentioned, it seems kind of weird that uh, Jack didn't actually Jack didn't actually say anything when he went into the shop. Uh, he just walked in, gun aimed, fired the gun at him. Didn't say hands up, didn't say robbery, didn't say give me your money. None of that happened. Uh, thank, thankfully, Frederick, Frederick Schlitt uh, was alive for about two days. He was in hospital. He was able to give quite a few statements. Uh, as mentioned, he picked, picked up the heavy check perforator to defend himself. 
unfortunately, do you know, you've got, you've got, even though uh, Jack is shorter than him, he's meant to be around five inches shorter than him. He was on top of him, a lot smaller, but was stabbing him with a knife. So he was trying to defend himself with a check perforator. Um, as mentioned, he had uh, multiple stab wounds, especially to his right hand. There was a clean cut at the base of the little finger and across to the palm on the other side. Uh, and one uh, one end exposing the tendon. Uh, on the left hand, there was a similar cut on the palm, but not so deep. So he, he had his hands up and was using his hands to defend himself. Um, as mentioned, he had uh, stab wounds to the intestine. Uh, the stomach, the left shoulder, but the main one, uh, he had a stab wound just above the heart, which was lucky, but unfortunately, uh, the main one was to his left lung, which is why he survived for about two days. Uh, unfortunately, he went to hospital uh, and they said he died of blood loss and shock. Da, da, da. What else is there? Uh, yep, yeah, uh, obviously, Benjamin saw this, Benjamin Gukin, he, saw, he, he heard the the glass break the 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 weight landed in front of him showered him in glass he looked inside he saw that there was a robbery going on well actually he said he said he saw that there seemed to be wrestling going on and then he looked and he could see the knife coming down so he screamed murder police this seems to be a thing in that era a lot of these stories are people screaming murder police i've never heard anyone of anyone in the last 50 years screaming murder police um what else we got? Uh, There's uh, a guy. Another witness was Oscar Miller. He was a tailor based next door. He heard the sound uh, of the glass breaking. He came out as well, so he witnessed all that was going on. Uh, George Thomas Carter was the van driver. He was driving along Shaftesbury Avenue towards Piccadilly Circus. He heard a crash of broken glass about 18 yards off his left. He heard the cries of police and murder help, which was from uh, Benjamin. Uh, he said, I called uh, police constable Howe, who was on the corner of Wardour Street. Uh, I jumped off my van and ran towards the prisoner who came out of the shop and ran towards me, uh, holding the front of his overcoat up. As I barred his way, he put out his right hand into his overcoat, took something out and made a blow at my left chest. Um... Uh, I felt a sharp sensation in the hand and a numbness at the shoulder. I called out to the police constable, look out, he's got a knife. Uh, when I got to him, he said, I know I've got it. That's the policeman who said that and pointed to his left shoulder. Uh, the policeman had been stabbed by that point as well. Uh, uh, that's not funny. <laughs> uh, the police constable was PC Albert Allen Howe, a Metropolitan Police Constable. Uh, he was on duty on the corner of Wardour Street near the obelisk. The obelisk uh, doesn't exist there anymore. I believe it has been moved. Um, at, he said at 11.45, I heard shouts. I went to 84. He went, well, he went towards 84 Shaftesbury Avenue and saw the prisoner pursued by Carter who shouted, stop him. I closed with the prisoner who held up his arm. I dodged, I dodged under his arm and he wounded me under the right shoulder in the bend of my arm. I held the prisoner's coat, threw down the knife, uh, which appeared in court. Uh, when I picked it up, I ran after him. Uh, Carter came up and said, he stabbed me. I found blood coming from my shoulder. Uh, by that point, other men had kind of joined in to help. There were several men who were helping the, the uh, policemen. Uh, rest this man. Uh, one was George Walter Armit, another cab driver. 
there's, there's a cab rank just by there, so there's a lot of uh, cab drivers. Um, oh, what else did he say? Yeah, they all joined in to arrest him. Uh, the knife fell from the prisoner's hand, and three or four of us encircled the prisoner who was taken off. Um, it was at that point, as mentioned, that uh, uh, Jack became really calm. He said, uh, I will go quietly with you, Constable. Constable said he was very cool. Um, on the way to sta- station, the policeman felt faint. He was relieved by peace. Police Constable Gower. Uh, he was taken uh, in a uh, taxi to Vine Street Police Station. Unfortunately, no longer there anymore. But that's just at the back of um, uh, Piccadilly Circus. Uh, and he said, uh, when I took overtook the prisoner, he was perfectly cool and calm, as if he'd been out for a walk. But he had no recollection of anything that had gone on that day. In, in fact, uh, all Jack could say, he said, he remembers the sound of a gun, but that's all he could remember. There's quite a lot of talk in, in if you look in a lot of the, the crappy tabloid newspapers and stuff like that, there's a lot of talk about the fact that he used aliases. Uh John didn't, they like to, they go, oh, he used four or five aliases. It's not aliases. It's basically, um, he's often in a state of confusion after he's um, had kind of his, his episodes, his attacks. So, you know, he gives names like John McDonald, which, you know, near his name, but it's slightly confusing. You know, he's John Esmond Murphy, but sometimes he uses John McDonald. Sometimes he, sometimes he uses Jack, which is another name for John. Uh, so yeah, they're not really aliases. It's, I, I think they're just really more of a state of confusion with him. Um, uh, they said that when he was at the police station, he was he was very calm. Very, uh, he, he seemed quite confused about what was going on. He didn't really know who, why he was there. He seemed to be quite distant. Uh, and when uh, he was taken to the police cells. Uh, he called out to the inspector, Inspector, you might let me know how the persons I injured are progressing. See, it doesn't make sense, does it, that anyone who would be that violent, oh, I'm going into a bank, I'm going to rob a bank, I'm going to sh- stab a man to death and, and shoot him and then stab two other people. Why would you go to a police station and be, you know, concerned about the people that you've just attacked? Um... George Calderwood, who was a manager of uh, Cartman and Schlitt, he returned about 12.15. I didn't put this in the story, but uh, he said there was a crowd outside and on entering the shop, I found Frederick, Mr. Schlitt, he calls him Frederick Schlitt, sitting on the chair on the public side of the counter in a very, steri- in a very serious state with his hands bleeding. The small door was open, the place disordered, paper bags scattered on the floor, the perforator had been moved, the check perforator, and, and everything was stained with blood, and there was blood upon the door. Mr. Schlitt's spectacles were on the floor, several of the brass weights were missing, and there was a hole through the window. Spots of blood were all over the floor uh, to within a yard of the window. And just a very small and noisy aircraft couple of miles away is a private airfield there's lots of lots of tosses flying in uh lots of people who don't don't seem to who seem to be able to fly in from other countries and aren't being quarantined interesting uh anyway <laughs> underneath uh, the counter he said uh, the the revolver was found so uh, a shot one shot had been five fired there was still five in there um and 
Yeah, it was weird. No money had been taken. I'm, I'm not going to mention about the money. But yeah, it says here, it says they're between 30 to 40 pounds worth in gold. So uh, what's that? You have to times that by 100. So yeah, a good couple of thousand pounds worth of gold just sitting there, uh, which would have really have helped him out. But he didn't. Uh, obviously, at the hospital, uh, the clerk of Bow Street Police Court court said that frederick uh, had made two statements um but unfortunately on monday the 9th of november 1908 at 5 30 a.m two days later frederick schlitt died of his injuries uh he was taken to charing cross hospital which is not too far away um as agreed post-mortem said that uh he died of shock and hemorrhage revolting resulting from his injuries what else we got um they checked uh, Jack's pockets. Uh, all he got in his pocket was a pawn ticket for two shops. Uh, so he pawned off some stuff. He'd got the thermometer he'd used on his sister the night before and the bottle of quinine. Uh, he got no money. Uh, he couldn't remember anything. Uh, at the trial, obviously, they brought in the medical experts. It's I mean, I've had, I've had to shorten it down for this. But uh, Jack was observed by Philip done the divisional surgeon at vine street district uh, for the police uh, so he was examined what's the timing on this this is like four hours later and said his temperature was quite normal well of course it was four hours later uh i found him to be perfectly rational rational in his answers to the questions i asked he was shivering lightly and his pulse was rapid at about 120 he answered my questions perfectly intelligent at once i found no symptom of epilepsy well, of course, because he's looking for grandma. I think I might have just buggered up the other one. Uh, he, uh, oh, fuck it. Just I'm going to say it so we can just get through this bit. This is important. So obviously the doctor's looking for the main kind of epilepsy that we all expect, not the type, the kind of more rarer type that uh, uh, Jack has. Um, I have heard the evidence with regard to epilepsy. After an attack, the person is certain to be drowsy, heavy and not at all clear. That condition would ordinarily continue for over three hours. If you if you look at this evidence here, you can clearly see that Philip Dunn, the divisional surgeon, is talking about the regular. He's talking about grand mal seizures, not the type that Philip, uh, not the type that Jack has. Um, uh, yeah, it's, he's saying that uh, ordinarily a person after an attack would be drowsy for three to four hours afterwards. Not true. Um, they they all agreed, all the doctors who came in agreed, because if you look in the press, unfortunately the press has always twisted the information, and what they say is, oh, there's this guy, and he blames the fact that he committed murder and a robbery on the fact that he had sunstroke and malaria once. And that's not true. What they're actually saying, if you if the press deliberately mess this around just to make a better story for themselves but if you actually look at it what the medical experts are saying is because when he was young he had uh sunstroke and he had malaria he also had possibly typhoid and cholera at an early age what they mean is they're saying that his immune system is a hell of a lot weaker so um as he had some kind of epilepsy this would have been exacerbated by that anyway so it actually reduced his health and his ability to recover so so the likelihood is that he probably would have had more attacks and they probably would have lasted longer than most others um Philip Dunn, the divisional surgeon, said, having heard the circumstances of the case, if these acts had been done by a prisoner in the course of an attack of mm -hmm, seizure, uh, it must have been one of the greatest violence. 
uh, as in greatest violence of seizure. It is invariable that attacks of the greatest violence leave leave the longest traces behind. Uh, I did not find the slightest trace uh, in the prisoner of ague. That's the kind of the the word that they used for it back then. Uh, the condition was perfectly consistent with nervousness arising from the situation. So throughout all that, you can see that Philip Dunn, even though he's a doctor, clearly doesn't know the difference between grand mal seizures and the other one that we're talking about. Uh, they didn't. They saw that he had scratches to the left of his wrist. He'd actually uh, uh, there was a chunk of flesh missing off the inside of his uh, finger of his uh, uh, his index finger on his left hand. Uh, they mentioned that they they saw that he'd he'd been obviously grinding his teeth recently. That didn't come up either. There was another doctor there, Adolphus Edward Bridges of Portland Place. He was a medical physician. Obviously, they didn't call in any epilepsy experts. Um, uh, they, he agreed that, you know, sunstroke and malaria would have aggravated uh, his condition years earlier. Um, he said, uh, where's this important bit? I found another bit because there here it is. He says, um, see, none of them had any experience really of epilepsy, especially this type of epilepsy or this type type of epilepsy uh, resulting in uh, some kind of violence, um, but during his uh, during this doctor, uh, Doctor Adolphus Bridges, when he's talking, he said there is a case that Do- Professor Simpson of Edinburgh told me about the following day. Uh, I have not known in my personal experience of a case of mm-hmm, uh, where the where the preparation leading up to the perpetration of this kind of violence was committed during the attack. But he said that they he'd heard of one in Edinburgh recently. Interestingly, they didn't call Professor Simpson of Edinburgh to come and discuss that. They left it to this guy who was local, who had no experience. So there we go. Uh, James Scott was the medical officer for Brixton Prison. Obviously, he had to examine uh, Jack in regards to his insanity plea. This happens a lot in that era. He said, I examined him. He examined him like seven days later. He talked rationally and connectedly. His memory was fairly good. I detected no delusions. I have seen nothing resembling an attack of ague. That's uh, epilepsy. Uh, uh, He slept and ate fairly well as a rule. His conduct generally has been quiet and well conducted, which is him and his normal self. At times he looked rather depressed, which he was because he's unemployed and his sister was unwell and he just bloody committed murder. Uh, I have not detected any insanity. In my opinion, on the 7th of November, he was conscious of his acts and in a condition to know whether he was right or wrong. So unfortunately, that went all the way through. Uh, 8th of December 1908, before Justice Rentoul, um, Jack was charged with the willful murder of Frederick Schlitt, feloniously wounding, uh, wounding George Carter, who was the driver, with the intent to do him grievous bodily harm. Same for Albert Howe, the policeman. Uh, with the intent to resist the lawful appre- appre- apprehension of himself. Um, and he was charged with, uh, obviously, the murder of Frederick Schlitt. Uh, what else we got? Yeah, do you know Interestingly, they... Um, uh, Mr. Justice Pickford said uh, it is sa- it is the safer course to admit it, meaning the dep- deposition of Jack's sister Kathleen into his mental health. And I shall caution the jury as to those points on which they ought not reply or rely. Sorry. So 
basically he says uh even though um we've got an expert well, not an expert but someone who knows about uh, jack's his personality and what he's normally like and what he's like when there's an attack going on i'll decide which beats you should decide on so uh yeah i, th- I think unfortunately with this trial they'd already decided uh that it was it, that it was a robbery and a murder and that it was not uh petty mal ah bugger i'm just giving away the question bollocks so close to the end there right we almost did it uh so yep he was executed on the 6th of january 1909 at 9 a.m it took place at penterville prison and the executioner was henry pierpoint who's the uncle i was about to say father then he was the uncle of albert pierpoint our favorite executioner good old albert uh or was he the father i can't remember it doesn't matter does it? it doesn't matter right let's do the questions the ones that hopefully i haven't ballsed up yet right Whew. question number one what city were jack and kathleen raised in what city in india were jack and kathleen raised in answer was calcutta question two what type of epilepsy did jack suffer from i've just literally given you that uh it was petty mal petty mal seizures uh i on my website if you go into the blog i've uh i've put in some videos of petty mal seizures so obviously everyone's used to the idea of kind of grand mal seizures which is the ones with a very violent uh uncontrollable uh convulsions of of the whole muscular system of the body right petty mal is entirely different so i've posted a little video on there it's mostly petty mal within children because um with with many people petty mal kind of it's there in childhood and then it kind of disappears uh but i've put it on there and it's really interesting to look at you can see kids they're not in any distress but it looks it looks as if someone has put a shield like a screen in front of their eyes and they can see something entirely different and that like they're in a little their own little world so they don't look distressed at all but it's you know they're clear they're like little statues but obviously that that this is a video of typical petty mal seizures not atypical which are very different uh i couldn't find any of atypical there was a video on there of a, of a lady discussing her atypical seizures but there's there's you know there doesn't seem to be any footage of atypicals uh question three what did jack's father do as a job he was a sergeant major in the army question four what is at 84 shasbury avenue today i say today don't forget we're just post lockdown so whether it's going to still be there we don't know uh but that is the ollie it could be ollie it could be ole uh it's a korean barbecue restaurant it's very good it's very nice the food is very tasty uh question five what was jack holding when stella found him under his sister's bed it was a cutthroat razor question six which tube station was jack the substation attendant for hard on this one did you hear it it was raven's court park tube that's over in uh west london uh question well southwest london question seven uh how much money was held at cartman and schlitz bank it's had a good not to give this one away uh in total they said it was uh, around two thousand pounds which is the equivalent of quarter of a million pounds today uh question eight what were jack's three favorite hobbies and interests 
They were engineering, Indian poetry, and shooting paper targets at the at the shooting range. Apparently, it was quite good. It's quite a good shot. He'd got uh, a couple of targets in his house. Police used this as evidence to say, "Oh, look, he, you know, he's an expert marksman." Blah 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 blah. blah. But he wasn't. It's like he he was keen on. Um, of precision the, the the guy who ran the uh, um the rifle range said you know he was a good bloke he rarely he rarely came in with friends uh but he was one of the people who'd come in there and he was very good and meticulous joe kept the gun in a, in a good working order and he he wasn't a dick about it you know he, he he would follow the rules and the regulations so that's that's why he liked him trusted him um I've got a whole section, I had a whole section in here about him going and buying the gun and he went through the whole process. Do you know, the, the gun he was using was legal, didn't steal it, legal gun. Uh, he bought a license for it that day. Joe signed it properly with his name and his address. Uh, so he got the, got the police license for it because he hadn't got a criminal record. So he could have a police license and a um, oh something else as well. Oh, I can't remember. But it was all legal and fine. And, you know, uh, everything was above board. He bought he bought some shots. He, he uh, did, did some practice shots. So, uh, yeah, it's all fine. We're not too sure where he got the knife from. Some people say he got it from the, the King's Rifle shooting range. Some say he doesn't. Uh, an odd thing was that's not included in here is on the knife, he filed off the maker's mark. Uh, we're not too sure why he did that. Some people did that, you know, because the, the the knife was definitely German, and people had a tendency to file off the the uh, any foreign makers' marks. Um, so, but we don't know why he did that. Uh, maybe he didn't do that. Maybe someone else did that. Maybe it was a second-hand knife. We don't know. Uh, so, not much is known about that. Question ten: Before Jack and Kathleen came to London from India, India, where did they live? Answer was Glasgow. Glasgow. So that's that. That's that done. Good. Whoa. That was a that was a hard one. That was a difficult one to write. Because obviously obviously all the evidence says he did it. And he did do it. And you know, you look the files all say he did it, and you know, in the press they say he did it. And I almost wasn't gonna do this. I knew about this case, but I knew the side that we'd been told. And I was like, oh, do I really want to do this one? I, you know, a guy who blames it on sunstroke and malaria. And I was like, oh, this is bollocks. But actually, when I opened up the file and looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, there's so much more going on here. So this, did it happen this way? We don't know. We will never know. We know, you know, there's no physical, we've only got people's, what people say they saw. They all said, you know, at the time of the attack, his eyes looked weird. You know, they were a little bit fluttery. He didn't seem to say anything. He, you know, um, all the evidence points to the fact that it was a petty mal seizure. But was it? We don't know. <clears throat> was he faking it? Unlikely. It seemed odd that someone so calm and meek and polite and, you know, that was in that kind of, uh, that would suddenly just snap and become become a violent criminal. But, you know, or... It's interesting, something I was thinking when I was doing this, you know, his sister has had a brain tumour, his mum had brain fever, his dad died of malaria, but there was something else going on as well. They all had hereditary uh, epilepsy. So I'm wondering whether he had some kind of, maybe he had some kind of brain tumour as well. There's recent cases uh, of people committing crimes who had, you know, a tumour on a specific part of their brain, which increases their testosterone and things like that. But... uh, 
and you know how people have changed you you take out the the tumor in that part of the brain and suddenly they're fine and you know they're they're entirely different people so you know maybe he had a tumor maybe the epilepsy was in a certain part of his brain we don't know uh and now he's he's obviously he's executed and uh, they didn't do an autopsy well they did an autopsy to to check that he died the way that he's meant to have done according to uh being hung but that's it so we will never know so uh this is this is kind of my angle of the story it could be 100 percent right it could be 100 percent wrong we don't know but obviously i'm writing jack's story for him um who knows who knows anyway that's me done i've still got a cake i haven't even i've got oh co-op based uh belgian bun Ooh, lovely so i'm gonna do that I'm, and i'm gonna go off and do my laundry in a bit very exciting god mike your life is just so amazing right hope your life is amazing don't forget stay safe keep your distance the longer we do this the more we can the better we do this the more that we can get rid of this virus and we can all go back to living a normal life and murder my warts can start again that'd be nice i could earn some money right <laughs> have yourselves a good day drink tea apparently tea is the cure it's not but we can imagine it is anyway have a good day be good stay safe bye even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.